Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Well, I wouldn't want it to be too perfect every night. It is live, after all. Looking at Lincoln Center, it sounds very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like, like once you're working there. Because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issues of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't, we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 407 for May 6th, 2010. This is our third, uh, what I have come to lovingly refer to as the Tony Press Clusterfuck episode for 2010. This is the Meet the Press function for all the Tony nominees. Uh, we've done this twice in the past, and uh, it's always usually a favorite episode. It's a madhouse, which is why I refer to it like I do. Um, in fact, I kind of refer to it kind of like a junior high dance. You know, there's like tons and tons of different media outlets, and everybody Everybody's trying to decide who they should talk to. And there's, of course, you know, the national media, which they're all eager for. But if they're busy, they're like, hmm, should I go with somebody smaller and risk losing, you know, getting a chance to dance with the master? And uh, things were kind of complicated this year. Well, not complicated, a uh, different way. Never know what to expect. This year, they decided to put all the geeky kids over in the corner, so to speak. All the quote-unquote radio and uh, internet media outlets were stuck way off to the side out of the pattern. So uh, on one hand, a lot of the big names didn't pop through. But on the other hand, uh, we actually had a quieter atmosphere than uh, most years. So the, the audio, I think, turned out a little bit better. And the people who did stop through, quite often we were not limited to just like three or four minutes with them, which we haven't in the past. And we've got some... Uh, Longer, more in-detail interviews. So there's always plus and minuses. And uh, I just hope for all the Broadway names' sake that all the movie stars that were nominated this year, considering they had so much time to talk to us, I'm kind of guessing all the major media outlets were holding out and saying no and trying to get the, the movie stars. Not sure, but in that case, we got some uh, great names. Oh, of the movie stars, I do want to give a special shout-out to Jude Law, who was really going above and beyond duty. From everything I could see, he made every effort to talk to absolutely every outlet there. Some in groups, some individually, but man, he uh, took the time to, I think, make it to everybody. So uh, maybe that uh, kind of warmth and good spirit is going to bode well from at the Tony Awards. In any case, we have got uh, a lot of people for you. We've got Dick Scanlon, uh, the co-book writer for Everyday Rapture. We've got John Logan, the playwright for Red. We've got Rob Ashford, uh, nominated fifth time for his uh, Tony Turn uh, choreographing Promises, Promises. We've got Sue Frost and Randy Adams, our friends. We've had them here before, uh, nominated for their first Broadway production of uh, Memphis. We've got uh, Donald Margulies, who is nominated for Best Play for Time Stand Still. Uh, the writers of Memphis, Joe DiPietro and David Bryan, stopped by to talk to us. That was very nice. And Pon Jovi's you know, been one of my favorite acts, and I was very pleasantly surprised at David Bryan's work there. Um, and then I'm going to probably mispronounce his name horribly. Kareen Plantedit, uh, support 
supporting actors for Come Fly Away, Stephen Kunkin, uh, featured actor for Enron, Chad Kimball, lead actor in a musical for Memphis, Sherry Renee Scott, lead actress in a musical for Everyday Rapture, along with co-book on uh, that for Best Book, Montego Glover, lead actress in a musical, Jude Law uh, fee- uh, for Best Actor in Hamlet. Valerie Harper, who is nominated for Best Actress, her turn as Tallulah Bankhead in Looped. And finally, we'll close out with Maria Ditzia, Best Featured Actress in a Play for In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play. Whew! A lot of things to get through. This is always a, a fun episode and a favorite. Hope you like getting a chance to truck in all these interviews. And uh, we're going to be back actually next week with a very special episode. Uh, we're one of the sponsors for the Planet Connections Festivity. And uh, so we're going to be doing a bonus episode next week uh, focusing on that. And then the week after that for a regularly scheduled episode, we'll be having, I believe, our uh, Tony features with uh, more Tony nominees. So sit back, relax, and take in the show. Hi, I'm Dick Scanlon. I'm the co-book writer and Tony nominee for Everyday Rapture. How does it feel to be a Tony nominee? Well, this is my second time at the rodeo. Uh, The first time I was double nominated for the lyrics and the book for Thoroughly Modern Millie in 2002. And that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But when you write a show like Thoroughly Modern Millie, which you know is going to be a big Broadway musical, the idea of Tony nominations isn't startling to you. You'll, You'll get them or you won't. Everyday Rapture is such an unusual piece. And certainly when Sherry and I began it, we had no idea that it would make its way to Broadway, and let alone that it would be Tony eligible. I mean, I had no sense that, that it would be because there was the category of best special event, which was sort of an umbrella category, and that was that. So really, until very recently, it never occurred to me that this would be Tony eligible. And then this, this production happened so quickly. We got a call 43 days ago. We, the show was completely in a drawer. We got a call 43 days ago from the roundabout saying, could you be open on Broadway in 37 days? And we said yes. So we're still getting used to the idea that it is happening. And meanwhile, it's already happened. It's been well-received, and now we're Tony-nominated. So it's, it's pretty extraordinary, I have to say. In a nutshell, what was the inspiration for the story? Well, the inspiration for the story is Sherry Renee Scott's life, my co-book writer and the star of the show, and she's nominated in both categories. Although the show is, is heavily fictionalized, Uh, From my perspective, the inspiration was awe at her abilities as a performer, that she is a postmodern vaudevillian. She's got this age-old understanding of how to perform, of, of how to relate to an audience, of how to exist on stage, but she has a completely contemporary worldview and a really profound interest in participating in the dialogue about the political and cultural issues of our day. So when you have that age-old kind of, you know, Burt Lahr, Judy Garland know-how, coupled with a really keen, fresh, contemporary political mind, I found it irresistible, and I thought that's, that's a ride I want to be on. It had a different name. For many years, it was called the Untitled Sherry Renee Scott Project, and then we did it for one night at, uh, as a benefit for the Phyllis Newman Women's Health Initiative, the Actors Fund, and we titled it You May Now Worship Me. Uh, when the show was picked up by Second Stage, Second Stage felt that that number, excuse me, that title suggested an event rather than a play, and they wanted us to think of a title that had more of a, a, a theatrical feeling to it. So actually, Carol Rothman at Second Stage suggested the title, and we liked it a great deal. How did you get to this? I mean, how 
Pardon me? Well, this is, it's really kooky. This is the only musical in the history that is based on liner notes. Um, I wrote the liner notes for Sherry Scott's CD 10 years ago, and what those liner notes were, were a, so there were songs written by composers she'd worked with, all men, and we wrote fictionalized vignettes about her relationships with the men that suggested that the relationships were sexual. So with Candor and Ebb, it was a menage a trois. With Elton John, it was cross-dressing. Uh, Jonathan Larson, we just called the man that got away. We didn't want to go there. Um, so we sort of created this persona for her in the writing of the liner notes, and then she was asked to perform at a benefit, and she said that she didn't like to do that because out of character she felt uncomfortable singing. I said, well, then let's take the persona we've created, let's have her say something before you sing, and then you'll be in character, and you'll be able to exist within that and sing the song within that, and that went really, really well. That was a decade ago, and we began to have an idea of could an evening be built where you're playing someone named Sherry Renee Scott who is you but also isn't you because uh, it's really a very, very theatricalized version of herself. It's a version of herself that has a much bigger ego and virtually no insight. And the real Sherry Renee Scott has great humility and enormous insight. So has every day been a rapture, so to speak? For the past 43 days, yes, I have to say. For the past 43 days, and you know, we've all had those years in life where that, that's not the case, so I'm really, really grateful for these 43 days. They've been absolutely beautiful. I mean, the, the only thing it's been is fast. There's been no drama. And I said to the stage manager on opening night, considering that the only requirement for employment was availability, literally, if we called you and you were available, we hired you. Didn't matter if you'd ever done it before. We just hired you. We got a really great team of people and who really, really get along. So it's been pretty blissful. What's the best part of working with Sherry? <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Sherry has a a writerly uh, sense of storytelling that has had years of actor experience at having to tell stories badly. So she's a natural writer's instinct for how stories should be told, the order information should be given in, and what information is important, what information isn't. Uh, and it's, I think, to work with someone who, from years of, of having to say material that wasn't as strong, uh, was absolutely committed to telling a story in a really artful way. It's made me a much better writer because, you know, I'll write some issues. We don't need that. We've said that two pages before. That's too soon to say that. Or that one, you know, we can communicate that with one word. She's almost like a camera, the way in a movie the camera does so much storytelling. Sherry understands the, the theatrical equivalent to that, how little, how much can be expressed in, in very small ways. And I, I'll write and write and write, kind of like I'm talking and talking and talking right now. So she's been very helpful to me in that regard. And I'm, I just love her very much. We've become really an integral part of each other's lives. Yes, you know. yes. Thank you so much. Up close. I am. Uh, my name is John Logan, and I'm the author of Red. Oh, oh Red. thank you, thank you. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it's extraordinary for me because I, I grew up in New Jersey and from the time I'm 12 I'm coming here seeing shows every single weekend half price so, so to actually have a play on Broadway and then have it being recognized with, with all these Tony nominations it's, it's a little overwhelming quite frankly you know? what, John when you were doing the scenery for, for, uh, when you were thinking about the scenery it's, it's amazing those paintings mm. 
Where did you get them? What happens to them? <laughs> the, the paintings we, we, we work, Christopher Oram, who's the designer of the show, worked very closely with Michael Granage, our brilliant director, and they worked with scenic painters, and we went to the Tate and studied the paintings, and they did chemical analysis. So the paintings that the audience sees every night at the Golden look more like the Seagram's murals when Rothko actually painted them in 1958 and 59, because there's been no sun fading to them. So they're, they're, they're crisp and clean paintings, and we're, everyone in the production is fighting to see who gets them when the show closes. <laughs> and one quick follow-up, Alfred actually is painting, right? So did he have to take lessons to, to do that? Yeah, Alfred Molina and Eddie Redmayne prime a canvas. It's sort of the it's, it's the fulcrum of the play, the very middle point of the play. And it, and we always knew it was going to, we always hoped it would be our big sort of coup de théâtre, our big theatrical effect. And we rehearsed that for weeks and weeks and weeks, the two of them getting splattered with paint for weeks on end for eight hours a day. So it is the most rehearsed point in the play, is that little choreographed dance where they, where they prime the canvas. Well, for writing about art is like dancing about architecture. No, I haven't, but I'm going to say it the rest of the day, so thanks. But talk about that, trying to put art, something that you feel differently in, in words. It was, it was very intimidating to think about how do you represent a painter on stage, because I didn't want to write a sort of a talking head play where we had intellectual discussions about art, although there's a fair amount of that. I wanted to write a play about a younger man and an older man, about a teacher and a student who happened to be painters. And the way, the thing that unlocked it for me was I went, I hung out at a lot of artist studios and I saw the actual things they did, mixing paint, private canvases, building stretchers. So I tried to tie everything in the play to a real action that painters did. So essentially you're watching a work play more than anything. I've been writing my Tony Acceptance speech since I was 12 years old. I've, some of the names have now changed, but the speech is the same. <laughs> a few years ago, people were bemoaning the original play's death on Broadway, but the past couple years it's really resurged with tons of new plays. Yeah. Do you see any sort of trend or a reason behind that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I hope so. I hope, I hope that, that the last few years have been so rich in, in new plays is just going to continue. Because finally, at its heart, to me, Broadway is always the home of Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Eugene O'Neill. It's the place where great American drama premieres and lives. So, so to be in the company of these fantastic writers, and all the writers who've, who've written for Broadway in the last few years, is, is extremely flattering and extremely humbling. John, you don't have to be an artist to appreciate this piece. It's, right. It felt to me it's about people on the precipice of change. Does, mm. that, does that resonate for you? Yeah, I, yeah I, would, I think the play very much works outside the world of just art, the world of, of being a play about artists. And I think it is about a changing world because, because Mark Rothko at this point in his life was facing a great beast called pop art. And all of a sudden, young artists like Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, Roy Lichtenstein were becoming the new hot thing. And the older established artists like Mark Rothko were starting to get a little passe. So one of the things that Alfred Molina plays so well in the course of the play is an artist on the verge of being irrelevant. And that motivates so much of his passion and his intensity and his sadness in the play. John, what's sort of the feedback that you've been getting from the hotel from the Four Seasons? Exactly. You know, I've, I have to tell you something honestly about the Four Seasons, which I've never had the nerve to go and eat there. Because I always think somehow they're going to recognize me and throw me out. But Fred Molina and Eddie Redmayne have gone there. They've had lunch there, and they were treated like kings. Really? Because, because, you know, it's the great Four Seasons restaurant. It's a play about the great Mark Rothko. It's, it's a New York story from first to last. So we're all sort of, like, enjoying it, I think. Yeah. All right, well, congratulations, and uh, good luck in Tony Night. A pleasure to, for all of you. Close. So uh, I'm Rob Ashford, and I'm nominated as choreographer for Promises, Promises. 
And this is the fifth time. This is the fifth time. How's it feel yeah. to be like number Susan five? Lucci <laughs> Broadway. No, I actually won one. I won my first one, so that's nice. That's a good you know. start. So once you do, you know, once you have the one, then you're like, okay, then it's all, so it's all good. No, it's thrilling. I, I, every time it happens, I'm so thankful and so excited. One hallmark of yours is you like to really bring in like kind of props and scenery into choreography. Into your choreography, is there an element of that in Promises, Promises that you're really proud of? Uh, there is an element of that in the in the opening number when we tried to establish the office, the Consolidated Life Insurance Company, where Chuck Baxter and Frank Kubelik work. So uh, we decided to instead of doing a traditional office with a bunch of desks and things, we do these uh, a suggested office, which is a chair and a hat rack, and uh, the the guys and the girls kind of make a carousel out of them, and they use them as kind Kind of a flirting device. So uh, those those are the only thing I think in this show that I would that I would say qualify in that category. What are the challenges of making non-dancers look like they know what they're doing? Well, that's my favorite challenge, to be honest, because I think they should look like they know what they're doing. But I, I don't necessarily am a believer that everyone should look like a dancer. In fact, the dancers in the show I try to encourage to look like people. You know, I think it's better that if a dancer looks like a person, you're in the audience, you, you feel like I can do that somehow. So it just inspires you in a different way, and it's just better storytelling because dancers don't work at the Consolidated Life Insurance Company. So it's to try to, try to always take the edge off the, you know, the dance attitude and, and try to make them characters. I remember turning to my husband saying, they, this is the first show I've seen with older-looking dancers. They're not 20-year-olds. Well, that was, I think it's important in the story of this play that these are all people that are above Chuck. So they're people that have been there. So they're established in a certain way. So when you're 20, how established can you be? You know, you're, you're in the mailroom when you're 20. So the idea of having, you know, a more mature dancers to, to help us point out that Chuck's at the bottom of the pecking order in this place uh, seemed like the way to go. And, and I, I think they're all terrific. I think they do a great job. Did you look at all to the original for inspiration when you were choreographing? You know, I try not to look specifically at, at dances for dances. You know, when I, I use, I, I certainly researched the period and the time and what was going on there, but as far as the original production or anything like that, I try to stay away from it because you don't want to be influenced and you can't help it sometimes. I go, I go for inspiration in, in other places. You know, if I really, if I need a dance inspiration, I, I'm, a, I'm on the board of directors at the Joyce Theater, so I'll go to the Joyce and watch a great contemporary company or something like that. To, to, that, that is a total different set of rules than what we play with here uh, on Broadway. Or I'll go to a museum and those kind of things. I, I definitely need inspiration constantly, but I, I worry about looking at the original or even photos of the original. I don't know, it just feels like it's not right. You know? Talking about that coat rack number, that that seemed like quite a challenge to keep the dancers connected to that piece of equipment. It was a challenge. It was a challenge. I think we went through ten different uh, versions of that chair to make it functional, safe. Because, you know, this guy swing those girls right by the pit. I mean, they're literally like two, three inches from the pit on those chairs, upside down, their, their legs in the air. So, trust exercise. Late 60s to early 60s. Is that partly the, the Mad Men design influence? You know, that I would say that's a little bit of it. The main reason was I always am fascinated by time periods when... Uh, it's the end of an era just before the rug gets pulled out. So uh, the extreme nature of everyone's um, energy and uh, goals right before a big event. So, you know, I feel like in the 60s, Kennedy being assassinated, uh, Vietnam and all of those things made us question, start questioning things. 
and I and I, I like setting the show where the American dream had been stretched, stretched, stretched. So there were no consequences. There were no sexual consequences. There were no health consequences. You could smoke. You could drink. There were no consequences to the earth. You know, so I like that that kind of a heady time before the fall. So that's that's another reason. And the original too, which is you know we do go back to the apartment obviously, and it's just I don't know, but love it, love, love the apartment. So in the past few years, with all the renewed interest in dance on television, have you seen anything of that impact your career outside of Broadway in the past couple of years? Uh, just that people are so much more aware of dance more than anything. They just like talk about it differently. I uh, last year I uh, was nominated for an Emmy for the Oscars that I did, a production with Hugh Jackman and Beyonce on the Oscars, not this past year, but the year before. And uh, when we went to the Emmy ceremony, uh, I, I was, you know, I expected to be choreography for, for television. You know, I expected we'll be in the back of the room. The choreographers were up front. We were up front on aisles, like in four or five rows. I, I was shocked. How, how did, I, and that is due to those shows and the popularity of them. That you're, that, you know what I mean? You can always tell. You know, you watch the Oscars and often, you know, the, the short documentary animated da-da-da is like, you know, it takes them a while to get to the, to the stage. But So I think that alone, that just the way people view choreography and choreographers, it's really cool. All right. Well, if you had to choose one dance as your favorite type, what would it be? Type of dance? Yeah. Oh, wow. Cha-cha, tango. Oh, tango. I spent a lot of time in Argentina and I love it. I love it, love it, love it. And the tango. I, I do. I dance just to create. I don't dance. I don't take class anymore. I should. Uh, and I just, you know, can barely get to the treadmill to try to keep from being fat. Other than that, I just... Um, um, just dance when I'm working. Have you had the opportunity to see your fellow nominees and, and their and their shows? I have. I've, I've seen. Um, I have not seen Twyla's show yet. I, I saw Fela and I loved it. I loved it. I had a great time. The Shoal show and and Bill T. Jones' work. I don't know him, but I, his work is terrific. Um, I haven't seen Lakai. I saw it in London, but I haven't seen it here yet. And. Uh, uh, and I haven't seen Twilight show yet, but I can't wait. Next week, this week coming up, I'm seeing everything, so I'm, I'm excited. Well, best of luck and Thank congratulations. You. A lot. Enjoy your Thank you. Thank you. Up close. Sue Frost. And I'm Randy Adams. And we are the producers of Memphis, new musical nominated yesterday for Tony. We've been following this so long, and we're very excited for you guys. Thank you. How's it feel to have one of the only new musicals on Broadway this season? You know, having one of the only new musicals and one of the two with an original score makes us incredibly proud because we have both spent our lives developing new musicals and producing new musicals, and and we are thrilled to be here. We are yeah. thrilled to the be here. The reason we went into business was we said we wanted to bring new musicals to Broadway. So here we are. We, we did it. One. We did it. And this is your first Broadway show, and you hit a home run. Show. Yep. <laughs> yep. Have you always been a team? No. no, no. We started this company about three and a half years ago. Yeah. We knew each other. Yeah. I was at the Good Speed for many years. Randy was at Theater Works in Palo Alto. We knew each other um, just professionally. We shared our we shared similar tastes because yeah. we found ourselves developing and producing the same shows and the same writers. And so when we started out in our journey, we decided to... Um, it was all Sue's fault. It was all my She fault. left the good speech. She said, I'm going to go do something. I'm like, what are you going to do? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I need to go. What was it? 20 you, years. You've they, been there 20 years? They're going to throw you a party. They're going to throw me a party. I said, no, when they start throwing parties, it's time to go. So. <laughs> <laughs> Broadway? Is it like, okay, we're joining the sellouts, or, or is it... No, you know what it is? I... 
you know, I think particularly with musical theater, Broadway is really the, the pinnacle for, for the creative uh, folks, and it's the most visibility. Uh, one of the things that we found developing new work regionally was was the, the, the path of... Um, of production was very challenging, so we wanted to explore different ways to get things out there because we know there are great writers and great projects, and it's just about distribution, you know, more than anything. So and we're the hard, thrilled. The hard part is it's sort of like when you produce a new show at your theater. That's great. You get it done, and that's good. But you got seven other shows right behind it, so you you sort of don't have time to shepherd it on. Uh, beyond that point in time, so you need somebody else to do it. So Sue and I sort of went, you know, that happens a lot. Maybe there's some way we can help, you know, coordinate that and help push them on to the next steps yeah. because that's the hard part. That's the hard part. You know, Memphis's box office has been doing quite better than a lot of shows with bigger buzz yep. than Memphis. Yep. So I'm yep. curious some of your initiatives as producers in order to get the marketing <clears throat> out on this. We show. work hard every day, <laughs> coming up with ideas, trying new things. We worked early on trying to come in. Uh, different grassroots things. We have a lot of online uh, efforts that we have. We knew coming in that we just, there's, you could spend a million dollars and it's still not enough to get attention if you're not based on a famous movie and if you don't have big stars. So we put our energies into a lot of grassroots and uh, we also knew we had a word of mouth show. So we needed to be there, and we needed to let people see it, and we needed to get the word out. So we spent a lot of time getting people in early, strategically bringing in, you know, whether it's concierges or, or you know, folks, just come in and see the show and then start talking about and it. And we spent a lot of time with the group market, too. I mean, Memphis is one of those shows that lends itself well to student groups, older groups, all across the board. And we've had enormous success in the group market. And the other thing we did was we took a little of our nonprofit background, and we were like, we're gonna, there are a lot of kids who should see the show, and we know that you can't all afford to get here. How can we somehow raise enough money to spend get those kids in? And so we started a program called Inspire Change, which we had, I don't know, it's close to $100,000 now, was donated in order to buy tickets for kids in schools and take, the uh, take them programs in terms of uh, with the actors before they come to see the show and then talkbacks afterwards. And, you know, we brought a lot of kids to the theater, and yet we still made money off it because they bought the tickets, but it's because those people raised the money. Not only entertaining, but good for you. Well, yes, indeed. So indeed, indeed. <laughs> you guys have come from different towns. How has New York embraced you personally? Us personally? You know, I think people have been really generous with us. Um, I worked here in New York many years ago before I went out to the Goodspeed, and I was amazed how many friends I still had here and how many folks were, were supportive and, uh, and, and, and really let us come in the door. So it was, um, it was challenging at times, but, but the folks that I knew from um, many years ago and the, and the friends that we made along the way at our regional theaters were really helpful to us. So, there were a lot of people, because we did a lot of new work out at TheaterWorks. There were a lot of producers and so forth who came through TheaterWorks to check out what we were doing. So, so I knew a lot of people coming to town. I didn't feel like I was walking in to know anybody, but they have been unbelievably generous and opened their doors to us and been very helpful. Any questions, you know, there was always somebody to call and ask, and they have just been very generous with their time and with us. We feel very fortunate, very blessed. Congratulations, a great show. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank We're you. So happy. Thank you so much. <laughs> Up close. Hi. Uh, I'm Donald Margulies, and I'm a playwright. Yay! Congratulations! And I was nominated for my play, Time Stands Still, uh, which uh, was produced by Manhattan Theatre Club at the Friedman Theatre. And is coming back in... And is coming back in the fall. 
we're being resurrected in the fall, which is really a wonderful thing to be able to say on this particular day. It's, it's, it's really auspicious. Does that resurrection have anything to do with the nomination? No, actually it doesn't. Uh, uh, there's, been, there's been movement afoot to get this production uh, remounted. We had to end what was a very successful run of Time Stand Still in March because Laura Linney was going off to do her television series for Showtime. So there was a hiatus, um, and there had been talk of us coming back, but now it's happened. And the fact that we can make that announcement the morning after the Tony announcement is, is particularly sweet. It's, it's just really wonderful timing. Tony Awards versus Pulitzer Prizes. What's the hierarchy there? Well, you know, it's, the Tony Award is a very public honor, the Pulitzer is a very staid and, and, and private affair. Um, I think that because so many of us grew up watching the Tony Awards on television, those of us who love theater always had an itch to be involved in theater. So I think that what we do is, is that we, we look at these awards, like the Oscars and the Tonys, that lit up our lives when we were kids and made our world seem bigger and gave us something to aspire to in a way, I think that it holds a particular significance because of the way we have romanticized awards. Uh, you know, I know there are a lot of people who poo-poo the, the value of these awards, but the truth is, is that it is meaningful. And it really, it is a validation of work that people do and toil at for years without proper recognition and, and go to great hardship to maintain a career. And it's, it's just wonderful to be recognized by the industry and to be given a national forum. Initial inspiration for you to write Time Stand Still? Time Stand Still is a play about uh, journalists. The central couple are a, a war correspondent and a photojournalist. And the photojournalist has been severely injured covering a war. Uh, and it's about their attempt to return to normalcy in, in New York. And um, I, I was very concerned about issues that, um, I, you know, I think all of us have friends who talk about politics and talk about the world and talk about the insolubility of so much of what's going on in the world. And I found that what was on so many people's minds was for me, uh, the impetus for a play in which people are grappling with these very notions that I think thinking people deal with. Your plays get into the guts of relationships on so many levels Thanks. and really resonate with the audience. Dinner with Friends, Collected Stories on Broadway as well, and Time Stands Still. How did this start for you? How did playwriting start for me? How did getting into the real mechanics of relationship do you, are, you a, are you a therapist or want to be therapist? <laughs> no, I'm not a therapist. I might have been a therapist. Uh, you know, I think that I, my, my abilities as a playwright, I think, were really honed when I was a child growing up in Brooklyn. I, I grew up not in a terribly dysfunctional home, but in a, a home that was sufficiently confusing and dramatic. And I think that I was always a very observant child. And I, I observed behavior a great deal. And I think that that's really where that skill began. And it just carried into the way I conducted myself in my life and in my art. I'm very interested, always interested, in the way people relate to one another and the effect that time has on relationships. I think if somebody, a friend of mine pointed to that recently, 
and said, you know, Donald, time figures in just about everything that you've written. And I said, you know, you're right. And here I have a play called Time Stands Still. And Time is certainly a player in Collected Stories, which is currently on Broadway. And um, it's, it's something that is, I, I find endlessly fascinating. I also, I, I teach playwriting. And one of the things that I teach my students is to be as rigorous as possible. And I think this is something that I not only preach, but I practice. To really get inside the heads of your characters and to really try to see the world and the point of view that they have from their side without any kind of condescension or commentary. But really get inside the heads of somebody whose point of view may be very different from your own. And I think that that's part of what I bring to the writing. Is to, is to get inside people's heads, be, to be non-judgmental about the attitudes that they have, and to really just let it rip, really go as far as I can with an argument. Talking about being non-judgmental, here you have Eric Bogosian and Alicia Silverstone. He's twice her age. Yes. Yes. Did you ever think, oh, no, I can't write this? No, as a matter of fact, I never thought I couldn't write about a May-December uh, relationship. You know, I'm always looking for ways to raise the stakes in my writing. And I thought that in this play that explores choices that people make, you know, sort of a domestic life versus a worldly life, I thought that it made a lot of sense to give the character of, of the photographer's um, editor um, a, a life change that is as different as the central couples as I could possibly imagine. So the fact that Eric Bogosian's character... Is, has taken up with a much younger woman, speaks to life choices, I think, that, um, uh, that people are confronted with. Did you talk to journalist friends about this before you wrote it to get their... Uh... When I was writing Time Stand Still, I, I, I did draw on um, uh, the experiences of journalist friends. I have very good friends who are involved in the media. Uh, I vetted the play with them constantly. Um, I have friends who, uh, you know, work for the New York Times and, you know, just people who are in, in, in real, sort of, uh, really in, in the trenches, uh, so to speak. And I, I, I did go to them to uh, confirm and validate choices that I'd made to, to help steer me away from maybe some preconceived ideas I might have had. So, yes, the answer is I, I did speak a great deal to journalists. And... Journalists have really embraced this play in a way that I find very gratifying. From Brooklyn to Broadway, how does it feel to go from B to B? <laughs> well, from B to B across the Brooklyn Bridge, if we're going to take this even further. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's too bad my parents didn't live to see this because I think they really would have taken a particular pleasure in something like a Tony nomination. Because, uh, you know, because we grew up watching the Tony Awards and going to Broadway shows. Uh, I came from a lower middle class household in Trump Village in Coney Island. And even though uh, we didn't go to synagogue, we went to Broadway. Broadway was an exalted place for middle income people like my parents who grew up, you know, you know sort of they were the, the war generation. Uh, and um, so Broadway always held a very special magical place. And I think that even though Broadway was never really a destination that I saw for myself as a playwright, it was always a symbol of a kind of glamour and a kind of um, embrace by a general public that would have been very enticing to a, to a kid in Brooklyn.
just in case we don't get a chance to talk to Alicia Silverstone, do you know the challenges that she had with that pregnant prosthesis that she had to wear? You know, I don't think that she, I don't think Alicia struggled with that at all. She she came to that role very very comfortably. Um, incidentally, Alicia is not coming back to the play in the fall. I just wanted to make that clear. She's not. Uh, she's the she has a conflict in the fall. So can't say yet. We're, we're, we're still determining that. But it'll be somebody really interesting. So the Broadway Theater was your, was your shrine, was your synagogue. As yes. A, right. When you said, when you decided you wanted to be a playwright, I mean, it also doesn't sound like the kind of family that would say, oh, darling, that's wonderful gold there, or would it be more, please, do you have something to fall back on? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I, my, neither of my parents were in show business. My mother was essentially a housewife. She became an office worker in the last years of her life. My father sold wallpaper at Pinchick's in Brooklyn for 43 years. These were not show business or intellectual people. And still, when I did aspire to be at first a visual artist and then a playwright, I was met with only support from my parents. It was by no means the, the stereotypic, you know, uh, you know, Jewish parents geshrying about the kid who won't be a doctor. I didn't receive any of that at all. And, and I think that was really a gift from my parents that um, they, they supported my aspiration. Great. Well, congratulations Thank on your Tony nomination and best of luck. Come Thank you very much. Very nice talking to you. Close. I am Joe DiPietro, uh, the co-author of Memphis, and I wrote, uh, nominated for uh, Best Book of a Musical, and along with uh, David, who wrote the music and uh, a lot of the lyrics too, nominated for Best Score. David Bryan, uh, we got Best Musical, I think, is that? Oh, I forgot that one, Best that Musical. That little one. Um, uh, best Score and uh, Orchestrations, co-orchestrated. Very exciting. Where were you guys when you found out the news? I've been up since Thursday <laughs> and uh, waiting for Monday morning at 8.20 mm -hmm. to get up, make some coffee, get the computer and TV rocking. And, uh, and it's pretty amazing after such a long journey that it comes down to a one-minute Well, it's been a very busy year for you because you also had Toxic Avenger, which is a big yes. hit off-Broadway. So two shows in one year. My question is, how did you come together to collaborate as writers? Uh, I had put aside sleep. <laughs> put aside sleep. But I actually had written a draft of Memphis, and it's about Memphis is about the birth of rock and roll, and uh, I wanted a real rocker to do it, and I know exactly zero real rockers. So uh, my agent sent it out to some possible um, uh, managers of rock people, and a two, couple months later, I got a call saying, out of the blue one day, hi, Joe, this is David Bryan. I'm the keyboardist for Bon Jovi, and I just read your script for Memphis, and I want to know how I can uh, write the score. And, like, you know, rock stars don't usually call me. So I was like, okay. And uh, we chatted. And I said, you know, I said, look, pick out a song and uh, write a song. There was some uh, lyrics in the script. And do whatever you want with the, with the lyrics. And send it to me. And I thought maybe a couple weeks later I'd get something. And the next day, right, the next day. I, I, had, read, see, yeah. I had read the script uh, that it came. I hadn't read many scripts at, at that time. And it came through. And I read it. And I went, I saw what you see on stage. I heard all the music. I saw everything. I was like, wow. And there's other voices in my head, like I said, but these ones actually mattered. And um, I talked to Joe, and I called him up, and he said, pick a song. And I look, and I said, the one song, I said, can I play with the lyrics, because I'm also a lyricist. And we looked at it, he said, pick a song. So I chose Music of My Soul, because to me, that was the heart of our character. And I, uh, I said, can I mess around with those lyrics? I said, yes. Yeah. So I went down into my studio, 
and uh, got the drum machine going and played piano, played the bass on it, played the, uh, the organ, sang, did all the background vocals, burned it down to a CD and FedExed it to him because there wasn't an internet uh, <laughs> a few years at, at the time. Yeah. And um, FedExed it to him and the next day. I said, i got to get it out before FedEx at 7 o'clock. So I was like, go, 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 go. I talked to him at, it must have been noon. Yeah. So uh, I really expected something two weeks later. And then when I got it, I listened to it once and I said, I hope he's not crazy because this is the guy. I just knew it. Well, baby I mean when did was this always in your blood no you know uh, I'm a songwriter and uh, and that's what I and I'm in a band and and after right around 90 I, I got a publishing deal and said let me learn the craft of songwriting with all your different songwriters so I was doing that and to get a cover to get somebody else to cover your songs uh, in country it's easy in rock and roll it's very difficult and I just wasn't getting a lot of covers and I was getting frustrated. My publisher said, you know, come on and write another song with the, with the, with the writer. I said, I'm not writing another one until you sell the last ten. <laughs> you know, because it's starting to get to, to be a waste. Of, it's just a waste. And, and it's heartbreaking that I have all these great songs. He goes, what, what about musicals? I go, what are those? And he says, I can get you 23 songs covered eight times a week. I went, I'm interested. <laughs> and that was how I started. So what's it like to be on Broadway? The songwriting game. The amazing part about taking a song and putting it into theater is uh, it's an unbelievable art form. And there's so many different levels of taking that song and then putting it into a play and how, how it works and moves a story. You know, there's so many different, you know, a, a song is a mini story. And then these mini stories inside of a bigger story, that's the fun part. Well, I'm curious, during all of this, you've had a heavy touring schedule still with Bon Jovi. How has development and rewrites and being there for rehearsals and seeing what needs to be done, how difficult has that process been? Luckily, on all the breaks, the band goes on vacation and I go to work. <laughs> so for the last three years, I've been like crazy. Yeah. But it, it's been, yeah. well, worth it and great, but it's worked out where there's been a break and we go to work. I go to this work. But also David once called me and uh, he said, Joe, I got this really great transition music for the show. And I said, David, what's that sound in the background? It sounds like a roar. And he goes, oh, it's 75,000 people like cheering for us to come on. But wait, you got to hear this. I'm like, no, go on, go on stage. And I'm like, it's good, play it later. So he's uh, got a real passion for this. Well, Joe, you've had... Have the guys come to see the show? And what did they say? Just supportive. You know, I, we were on the phones all day yesterday. Just congratulations to me. And we support each other, and it's a great thing. You know, I mean, we're... Mm-hmm. And the biggest band in the world for 27 years, and we're friends and support each other, and it's, it's great. Well, Joe, and you've had a lot of success off Broadway as well. I love you. You're perfect now. Change and the other show. You guys, how different does Broadway feel having a hit on Broadway versus your hit off Broadway? Uh, I mean, off Broadway is terrific, and I, and I love that form of it because you can do smaller things. But there's nothing like a Broadway hit. I mean, being at the Schubert Theater playing Memphis eight times a week and seeing over a thousand people per performance just screaming for the show every performance. It's just really, just I think as a writer of theater, there's just no better feeling than that. And, and it's, you know what, and it's a, it's a story that matters. That's the biggest thing that drew me to it. It's, it's an important story, but it matters. You're, it's a snapshot. It's a modern look back at 60 years ago of what, of what racism was and, and the daringness of an interracial couple uh, relationship and the birth of rock and roll. There were so many things stirring in that soup. And um, to sit here so many years later and watch people be affected by it and see how ugly that looks. And maybe the world is a little better place for, for it. 
So it's entertainment that matters on top of entertaining people. There was a, an element for me as a, as a reviewer of the play. I said every student should see this play, this musical, because they are not aware of what went on before. Well, it's, it's amazing because we've had, you know, a lot of teenagers have seen the play, and a lot of them say, I had no idea segregation was actually like this. I mean, society is still segregated in certain ways, but not like it was in 1950s in Memphis, Tennessee, certainly. So it is uh, not only entertainment, but I don't even think we realize it, but a historical educational show, too. I got 16-year-old twins, a boy and a girl, and a 10-year-old girl, and they've seen it through the processes, and... Uh, yeah, they're. It's a great thing, you know. They there's a lot of. They've told a lot of their friends. They've seen the show, and it, it is. You need to, you know. It's. Uh, I'm a white Jewish kid from Edison, New Jersey. You know, we always said that. You know, you don't forget your. You don't forget the past, and you can't forget the past. You should have to show that next generation what that was and how we've come and how far we have to go. Well, not only is your show the only completely original musical on Broadway this season, but a lot of the team, the producers, a lot of the acting on, on stage, you guys are newcomers to Broadway. Does it feel like you're kind of the, the kids crashing the prom in some ways? You know what? I, I think we've, we've done the show for, for such a, a long time, and it's been in productions. It just feels, it feels right. It feels great. I mean, we're humble servants of the craft, you know what I mean? And to be in, uh, to be in Broadway on that stage... With no big stars and an original piece written for the theater, we're we're pretty proud and happy. Are you guys gonna work together again? We oh, are a yeah. team. We have a team. We have another show. We're uh, a third of it done with it. So yeah, we have another show coming up. So we're yeah, we're definitely a team. Anything that you can tell us? Sure. It's actually uh, takes place. It's about songwriters. It takes place in the early 1960s in set against the backdrop of the Brill Building. Right prior to when the Beatles came and changed the whole business. So it's about the period between 1960 to 1964. And uh, original story, original songs uh, that I think is going to be really exciting. Yeah, so it, won't be, it can't be the Brill Building story because uh, I'd be out of a job. Yes. And we're just in the works, you know, working on it. So, yeah. you know, and basing it as a, it's an American art form, you know, this, the, the songwriter. So in seeing people always say, you know, what's, uh, what comes first, the music or the lyrics? And if you can show that and right. then show where it comes from, where, where, those, where these songwriters are part of what, what happens in America. Is there a working title? The, chasing the Song is the working title. Getting that number one hit. Yeah, that's right. David, I have to ask you about that ring. What, what is that ring? It's phenomenal. It's huge. <laughs> it's rock and roll. <laughs> he punches me with it when he doesn't agree with something. <laughs> exactly, that's right. It's all well, congratulations on your nomination and best Thank of luck in so Tony. I really appreciate Thank it all, guys. You. Thank you. Up close. Good morning. My name is Karine Plantadi, and I am from Come Fly Away, Frank Sinatra and Twilla Tharp Love Affair. <laughs> so, how does it feel to receive a nomination for uh, supporting actors? What does it feel to um, get a nomination? It, it, um, I, have no, I don't know what it feels like. I, 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 like I said, I jumped four times in my house last night. And no, yesterday morning, I jumped out of joy. And then on the fifth time, I hurt my, I hurt my ankle. I was like, oh, no, I got a show to do tomorrow. I mean, tonight. So it was so overwhelming that I, it was like a kid 
that was just told that they were, I don't know, that they were receiving the biggest lollipop they've ever seen in their life. It's that joy that comes really from an inner place. And, and I was able to actually share that with my boyfriend and my friends and my family in France. So not only receiving it, but also sharing it was a big thing. And then sharing it at the theater with my cast members. And we are going in. We are going in, like I say to all of them. We are making this happen. So It's interesting as a dancer to be nominated as a featured actress. So how does that make you feel? The... Um, absolute honor that comes from being nominated uh, as a dancer for a featured actress position with this incredible uh, people that are doing it with me or are being nominated with me it's the fact that I truly believe that we have moved forward as dancers and dancers in Come Fly Away we've trained ourselves to do from dance and acting we're merging the two it's not just dance so for us to be nominated it's an humongous way of recognizing that our work was recognized and that the audience is ready to see something new so it's, it's, it's timely and it's also you know you can tr try to do something new as an artist and then maybe the audience is not ready for it. Maybe it's not the time. So maybe you have to wait until you die and then they recognize it. Oh no, what a drama. I mean, hopefully and thankfully, I'm alive and I'm here. <laughs> yes, I was in a commercial before, a couple of them actually. Lang's Crafter, McDonald's, I did American Express. Commercial, did you? No, someone else who looks just like me, uh, my sister, certainly, is doing it. Karine, if you could speak to Frank oh. right now, what would you say to Frank Sinatra? I would say thank you. I will simply say thank you to this gentleman for a couple of reasons. One of them is his his vulnerability when he was performing is to me something that's extremely tangible. His honesty when he was performing and also his, his, what's the, his irreverence. I love the fact, and Twilight is like that. There's a bit of irreverence. And I think that to be an artist today and to be a human being that you're happy to be with, your own human, you have to be irreverent. There's a part you have to go, hell no. I'm doing it no matter what. Been the most challenging steps for you to master, would you say, in, in Twyla's choreography? The most challenging steps uh, within the play of Come Fly Away, probably our most challenging is our partnering. We have to partner a great deal and we have to make sure that the each person is absolutely in sync with one another. It's a task, it's a, it's a real task because you can partner with one person. I have an amazing partner, Keith Robert, the best partner ever. I can do anything. I can climb a wall and he will be right behind me. I can decide to jump and he will catch me. Um, but then there's partnering with three other people where you have to fly me to the moon. You have to go from one man to another. And at that moment, you have to be so in tune with that one human being for two seconds and then be thrown to the next and match their energy right away. So it's a task. And it's something that Twyla is very comfortable with. I and mean, she was like, we're going to go and do that. Yes, I have been dropped. It comes, it comes with becoming excellent, you see. Being dropped, <laughs> actually, I will tell you something. Being dropped is not the end of the world. 
it's not coming back up. It's the end of the world. <laughs> Where are you from? I don't quite recognize the accent. I am a mixed. I am, um, I am from France, from my dad, and I'm a mix. My mom is from Africa and the French West Indies. I was raised in Cameroon and in France at, at, at one time. Was a Broadway aspiration part of your young life, or did you know of that? Thing? Yeah, but really in the back of my mind, it was more dance at the beginning of the, my career was dance, and that's why I came to this country to join the Ailey Company, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. But while I was in the Ailey Company, there was a moment where I was just like, wait a minute, what about that little dream I had about Broadway? What's that Broadway situation about? So today we have the opportunity to actually bring together on the Broadway stage an humongous amount of artistry coming from the dancer's point of view and the artist's point of view. And I'm thrilled to be part of that journey. Now, over the years, it seems like it used to be a very specialized, you should focus in one area of dance. And over the past like decade or so, the shift seems to be more and more being more well-rounded in dance. Have you noticed that trend yourself? And how? what were the hardest things for you to work on in getting well-rounded? Do you know what? The hardest thing, there is no hardest thing. It's either you put your heart to it or you don't. It's simple. It's either you want to be on stage or you don't want to be on stage. And this became a very clear thing for me. I love to be an artist. I love the stage and I love the screen. I love them both. So for me to say, no, I can't act, then you know what? You might as well take off everything that you will show, you know, you will do in acting, or I can sing, just go learn. I mean, if you love it, just, just learn. And I believe that that's the part that makes the difference between people that are going to evolve with the art or the one that's going to stay on the side and in the gutter. Well, I mean, even more specifically, like 15 years ago, it was like you should focus in modern dance or ballet or jazz. But it isn't, it, nowadays it seems to be there's more of a need to cross-train in all the different styles of dance as well, is that right? Yes, we do want to cross-train in everything, and I think today, because of the amount of TV, amount of internet, we all have to cross, we all have to do something else and, and expand, it's about expansion. And today we are asked absolutely, as when I speak to uh, students, oftentimes I tell them, branch out, in, you have to try it all. Because at, at one point, there will be one character that will ask you, to play the flute. I don't know. So go and try playing the flute. I mean, do something. You know, you, we have to, as artists, we have to constantly evolve. We can never get stuck because the audience wants us. They want us and we have to be able to touch each one of them. So we have to evolve. Maybe sometimes doing a role that wouldn't involve dancing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would love to do a play, a straight play. I would love to do, I have a way of using my body that I can tone down and tone back up. So it's my intensity and my wisdom for that character that's going to make it happen. You know, so yes, I'm absolutely ready for a straight play. Yeah. When you were a little girl, what sort of music did you dance to in your house? African music and also a lot of um, French music. I did, oh, Michael Jackson was very present in Africa. So, yeah. Thank you. Well, congratulations on your Tony nomination and best of luck. Come it's my uh, pleasure. I appreciate it deeply. You guys have a wonderful day. Thank you. I know it's a long day for all of us, but I'm sure you have a wonderful day. Close. My name is Steve Kunkin. I was nominated for Best Featured Actor for playing Andy Fastow in Enron. Congratulations. Thank you. 
very, very much. I just saw you last night. Did I was you really? Oh, last man, night. Yes. thank you. I'm playing a real-life person, but uh, this time you probably didn't have any contact with Andy Pascoe, the real Andy Pascoe. No, I did not get to the to the security prison that he is in, although in 2011 uh, he, he may come and see me. <laughs> Hopefully not. But... Uh, yeah, I, I never, I never got to meet him, but I sure there's a whole lot of source material to, to see of the of the gentleman. Well, I, you know, I think the the great success of the play and what we try to achieve is to make these incredibly difficult ideas make sense to people. Part of the reasons that we continue to make a lot of the problems that we're having happen is because people just go, I don't, I don't know, I, I invest my money, my finance guy does it, and so what? Um, and I think this play just takes every theatrical trick it can take and, and says, we're going to make a dinosaur, and you're going to, because a dinosaur isn't frightening to you, uh, you, you invest in that, and then by the end of the evening, you, you know, you understood something that you never understood before. Um, so you just sort of invest as you would in any play. You just do it to the... You do it with all your heart and soul, and you sing the song about, you know, trading gold and aluminum, and um, and hopefully people get on board with it. Now, were you in the British production as well? No. Uh, it's, the American company was, is a completely new company, which is actually, I think, a real testament to the the directors and the producers. They want It's an American story, and they were really conscious of, of wanting to have American voices portray these guys. Did you ever see the British production at all? I did not. I mean, I... I now I'd be very interested. Now that now that I'm sort of locked into what I'm doing, but um, you know, I hear they were fantastic. They were all fantastic, uh, and we've seen a couple things online that you know were some clips, and you go, "Ooh, wow! Yeah, look at that! I'm gonna steal that." Being in this changed the way you look at your own money. Completely, yeah. And and I, I'm part of it is that yeah, I want to know. I and part of it is also I don't know who to trust. You know, to a certain extent, I think that. It was interesting because we were really running the gauntlet of tech rehearsals right around tax time. And, uh, you know, it's interesting as you start to put together all your deductions, you go, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to claim that one this year. Uh, you know, that we have a responsibility to actually do the right thing. Part of when you play a guy who constantly is doing the wrong thing is, is to sort of say, you know, we have... That was, a, that was a movie. I went to see a movie. That wasn't research this year. I'm not going to claim that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people in the play have uh, have sort of decided to re-examine that. Financial bad guys made you better people. Yeah, I, I hope. Um, and I hope that's what the audience gets out of it, too. I mean, you can have a lot of fun with these guys and still, and still hate them, I think. What is your... What is your theatrical training and background? Uh, I went to, I did my undergrad at Tufts University, which is actually surprisingly where Andy Fastow did his undergraduate uh, work. And then I went to the Juilliard School for uh, my graduate work in acting. Is there any particular teacher you'd like to shout out who influenced you? Uh, you know, the first one I had was this high school teacher named Jordan Hornstein, who was amazing. And he actually just, just Facebooked me, God love Facebook, uh, to say, to to say hi and you know he totally set me on the path we were doing Brecht and you know all these crazy plays that no high school should ever be doing um, right from the get go and challenged us to, to really think about you know acting in a, in a very different way than a lot of schools that are just about pre- presenting and presentationalizing um, and so he was really amazing 
amazing guy. Imant is a piece that really stimulates thought long after the show is over. What do you want audiences to walk away with at the end of the day? I, I want the audience to feel empowered to ask the questions that I think that, that not to, to not be afraid of of these complex ideas. And it was interesting. I was watching the Bill Maher show a couple of weeks ago, and um, it was right. It was about the Goldman Sachs trials, and they had on a. a PhD from MIT trying to explain one of the ideas to Bill and Bill said yeah, yeah you've lost me and the whole audience laughed because obviously the whole audience was lost at this point too and they started to move on and then he sort of stopped and he said no this is this is exactly why we're in this situation we're in this situation because we stop asking the questions once it gets difficult and the fact is a lot of these guys on the other side of that table want you to stop asking those questions so that they can do the machinations that they need to do to get 45 million bucks uh, off of your off of your money. And so it it if we're not to be impl- I think part of this play is it implicates us too. It it says you have to ask the questions. You have to do the work and find out what's going on or else you know you're responsible for your part of the responsibility for the problem too. Um, so I, I hope that's what people walk away with, with the, an aggressive desire to figure out what's actually happening. Because this place started over in Britain, do you find that there's a point of view towards the whole scandal that in America we may have missed or gotten a completely different angle from all the media here? Well, they certainly, they're lucky because they, I mean, it, I'll, I'll re-answer this in a second. I mean, they're lucky because they have the distance from some of the things to be able to actually uh, to be actually to, to laugh at some of the stuff that I think is very close to home for us that we're still licking our wounds about. However, they have just as many problems going on right there now. I mean, the bailout in Greece and everything. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough time. I mean, I, I, I think that one of the things that British theater does very, very well and British audiences are... Uh, able to do is really listen to language and parse complex language very, very well. Um, British theater sometimes isn't isn't motivated by action the way American theater often is. Um, it's the strengths of both of the different, on both sides of the pond, both of our kinds of theater. Um, and there's a lot of that in, in Enron. There's a, it's a, a hybrid of, of both. So I think that's one of the great things about bringing an American cast into this is it took that sensibility and meshed it with ours. What's it like to be nominated for the Tony? It's like the coolest thing ever. <laughs> it's really amazing. I mean, I grew up on Long Island, and my parents just took me into the theater all the time. And like the Fourth of July. Absolutely, and we, exactly. And uh, you know, this was this was the award show. I'm sure for every single. I won't say every, but most other people, it was like, oh, it's the Oscars. For my family, it was, it was the big advertisement about what we were going to get to see, you know, for Memorial Day or Fourth of July for the next holiday, or see the thing like revisit Chorus Line or whatever. So to actually step through the looking glass and be a part of it is just completely out of body. Well, thank you very much, and congratulations for your Tony, and best of luck on Tony Night. Thank you, guys. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Close. I'm Chad Kimball, and I uh, am nominated for, is it, it Best Leading Actor in a Musical? Is that right? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> um, for the Memphis the Musical. 
So, how does it feel like getting a nomination with this uh, show? Well, I mean, we've been we're going on uh, Memphis is going on seven months now. Our we're, our 250th show is coming up. So we, I think we kind of uh, were thinking about the Tonys and and award season way back when you know when we opened, and then you know got hit by two blizzards, an ice storm, uh, bomb scare. Uh, those are the negatives, but then you know Michelle Obama came to the show, and we we've just we've just had such a great run, and uh, so to be honored this way yesterday was just kind of uh, just a just shockingly gratifying. Well, you know, it was six years ago that I first did, we did our first production of Memphis at North Shore Music Theater. And uh, when, I, when I went into the room, or when I was uh, faxed, I believe it was faxed back then, email was not really around for PDFs. <laughs> uh, I got the music and I learned it and I thought, this is great. Who's this guy? David Bryan of Bon Jovi. I know Bon Jovi. Yes, I know that name. Uh, and so then I heard a second song and thought he's really got what it takes but got what it takes when I say that I mean that it's kind of harkens back to the golden era of Broadway where those where a lot of the popular songs came from the theater from musical theater and uh, and so he he knows how to write for the radio and so I think that people respond to it uh, it's accessible and, and people respond to it just like they're listening to the radio so, and he's a rock star. It's pretty cool. <laughs> How do you hit that high, high note? Uh, let's see. <clears throat> it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's actually been quite a, a, a journey with that high note because it's actually not in the score. I, I remember when I came in the very last time to, to really re-audition again, even though I'd done the role again, I, I said I want to be seen by them just to make sure. And um, I was kind of singing the song to myself and and kind of just flipped up there uh, and thought, well, I'm going to do that in the uh, audition. So we kept it, which is another great part about these guys is that they're so collaborative, this whole team. You know, if you have a good idea, they're not going to say, I don't know. They'll let it, they'll let it ride and see what can, what can happen from it. And so that note is, oh, it's, it's breath and it's relaxation. And I listen, I've been through the bringer with that one. <laughs> why did I sing it? Why, why, why? Well, the whole show is a, is a bunch of newcomers, which is really exciting. Yeah. But on that same hand, were you ever afraid at somewhere along the way that they might like want to replace you with a bigger marquee star? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they're producers. They had to think about that. I get it. And, and, uh, but they were very upfront with me, and they said, you know, we're thinking about doing this. We don't know. And they quickly decided that that was not a good idea. And to their credit, I think that they've brought something to the table that has no strings attached. And, uh, and I think that we're better off for it. You were born what year? 76. What do you know or remember about the 60s? Or what were you told about the 60s? Uh, well, I don't remember anything about the 60s. Um, I... Gosh, I mean, it's, it was all, I learned it all in music, you know? I mean, the music of the time and uh, the 50s, the 60s, the 40s. I mean, I learned my whole history from, from music and still trying to learn it. I'm, I'm the guy who doesn't know the band, I just know the song. I actually, when I did Lennon on Broadway a couple of years ago, I, 
I was like, that's a Beatles song? I love that song. Yes. Isn't that sad? Ben, because you've known this show for a long time in a lot of different incarnations, is it different? Is Broadway different or is it just, we're just doing this show? We've been doing this show. It's, it's different that we've brought it to a, a wider audience. Um, is that wider or wide, whiter? Wider with a D. <laughs> wider with a D. Actually, we've had quite a mix of ethnicities who've come to see the show, which is really great. I mean, people sitting, you know, elbow to elbow. Uh, but we, since bringing it to Broadway, there's a magic about Broadway and a, 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 a true love of theater here in New York City that really can't be... Uh, copied anywhere else and um, so uh, to, to bring it here the audience reactions have been you know exuberant just like they were <laughs> six years ago um, but to be able to fine tune it over six years is uh, a real blessing you're in some category I and mean, you've got amazing men it's amazing I was looking at the list and I was like wow 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 my dad said he goes uh, are you going to meet Kelsey Grammer <laughs> tomorrow and say, well, I might, Dad. I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> uh, they are amazing. And I, I, I unfortunately haven't been able to see most of the shows. I'm just so tired <laughs> most of the time. But um, um, I do know Sean uh, Hayes. We did a reading together uh, about two years ago in, in, in Los Angeles. And so he emailed me yesterday and congratulated me, and I emailed him back congratulating him. I'm just so happy for everybody. I mean... Uh, you know, to, to know what, what goes into it and to know the, 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 the heartache and the, the, the passion and just everything that goes into it. And I'm just so happy for everybody, and I just wish everybody the best. Do you have a routine to keep your voice in shape for such a demanding role eight times a week? Sleep and water and a little bit of caffeine <laughs> and sleep. So are you thinking at all about your Tony acceptance speech, Chad? Uh, you know, I've thought about it, absolutely. Um, how, how much time do you have? Do you, do you get like a minute or something? Or like 30 seconds? About, about, really? Yeah. That's it's a, brief. Uh, maybe it's just, maybe it'll just be like crying and laughing. That always works. I don't know. If, if I am honored that way, then I, I will write something down. I have to, otherwise I'll probably fall off the stage. That would be embarrassing, wouldn't it? If you just they fell over. You. They would remember you, they, and then they, and that's when they take the they just take your nomination away. I'm like I'm sorry, we're gonna have to take this back. Wait, wait, no, it's mine. Do you have a particular drama teacher in your past that was uh, particularly influential on you? My high school drama teacher, Ruben Van Kempen, had a great drama program, Roosevelt High School in Seattle, and I called him yesterday, and I said, "Am I am I the first Roosevelt alum to be nominated for Tony?" He said, yeah, "Well, yes, my 31 years. I think you're the first one." So uh, it was great to be able to call him and share the moment with him. And... What's the best part of being in New York and being on Broadway? Well, uh, like I said, there's just the magic on Broadway, and uh, to see all those crowds of people just coming—it's like you know, we go on this roller coaster every night. And and we get to we get to be honored every night, uh, not just today by being Tony nominees, but we get to be honored every night at Memphis by a rousing uh, reaction. Um, I I liken it to um, you know a kid opening a, pr a present on Christmas morning, you know every time because it's brand new, it's original, nobody knows what they're getting, and uh, they just rip open the package and the excitement is it's palpable. 
Congratulations. Congratulations and best of luck come Tony night. Appreciate it. Thanks. Up close. Hi, my name is Sherry Renee Scott, um, and uh, I'm nominated with my co-author Dick Scanlon uh, for uh, Best Book of a Musical for Everyday Rapture, and I also am nominated for whatever it's called for being a good actress in a musical. <laughs> well, now, this is, must be a surprise, because this all came together very quickly heading to the roundabout, correct? Um, yes, it all did come together very quickly. Um, uh, uh, we'd um, done the show um, uh, to, uh, uh, you know, uh, very uh, nice reviews last year off Broadway, and many people were interested in moving it. Um, and of course, in this climate, um, being a semi, 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 semi star is not great for getting your Broadway show opened. And so, a lot of theaters didn't want to take a chance on me and, and the show. And um, then we had an opening at Roundabout um, that was, um, you know, very serendipitous and. Uh, and that was about three weeks ago, I think. So Michael Mayer and our entire creative team was working on American Idiot, which is an amazing show that I love. And we had to call them up on the phone and say, I know you guys were all planning on taking vacations with all your new rock star friends, but can you come over and open up your you know, little stepsister of a play over here? And um, they all said yes. And, and um, we put up a little, you know, it's like Mickey and Judy doing it in a barn, only we did it in a Broadway house at the American Airlines. And... Um, uh, and we put up a show, and um, uh, we got it up, and, and actually, um, people are really flipping out for it. And um, you know, all the roundabout subscriber audiences love it, as well as you know, um, just uh, younger theater goers that you know are coming in that are American Idiot fans. So, and um, it doesn't help that the band comes to see the show like every week and brings their family. So it's a weird mix of Michael Mayer's genius, you know, this bringing in theater. Um, musical theater, especially into this millennium, and move it, pushing it forward. And um, our show, Everyday Rapture, is kind of a new, completely unique type of show with a with a wink and nod back to old musicals. What's been the most daunting thing about having your life up on the stage? Would you say? Um, I think the most daunting thing about um, uh, being on stage in a in a semi autobiographical piece is is um, is that I play that my character is kind of an a-hole and I love playing her and um, how much of the people think that it's really my life and it's me and my story and I have to like, you know, it's not interesting to me at all to um, eight times a week get up and tell my life story so obviously Dick and I have been very much creative writing and we wanted to address certain themes that are important to us and we found creative ways to do that um, and um, that a lot of people think um, certain things about me that are true that aren't, and the things that are true they don't think are true. So it's all a big mix of everything. Walk around in life saying, you know, that's not really no, me. I don't care. I mean, people are going to think what they want to think. I say it in the show almost, like kind of explain the truth, but no one ever's really heard. They just don't. People don't hear what they don't want to hear. You know. So, and also, I don't care. You know. What I mean, it's like it's like. I, I love this character. I love her journey. Um, I like her spiritual journey, her female journey, her sexual journey. Um, and um, it's, I, I wanted to do this show only if um, I could retain my personal life and, and, you know what I mean, and complete privacy and, and stuff like that. So um, this is just a way of doing that, just 
people think that that my personal life is completely different <laughs> and I'm much more interesting than I am and I'm really not. <laughs> Sherry, you've had a couple of different names in incarnations of the play, of, of the musical. It could almost be called From Mennonite to Manhattan. Right. right. Uh, how have has New York changed you since you've come from the different background that you had? Um, well, yeah, uh, how New York has changed me in that I, I mean, it sounds corny, but you know, I was always looking for a home, and I think that a lot of people in New York are like me, people that um, are in communities of people that they love and, and you know, respect, but um, you're looking for more. You're looking for something different. You're looking for artistic expression. You know, you're looking for um, an experience of your true self. You know, all the things that you're inhibited from in other towns and everyone that's kind of our unifying thing that we're all here for and especially in theater we're a bunch of misfit outcasts that from other towns that you know came here the people that were made fun of and and you know um like in my community coming to new york you know to be an actor was equivalent to stripper you know it was like you're not really going to act you're going to strip of course i did that also but that was just to raise money but um but um girl but uh, but it so there's um it it, um, I think we have a point in the show that um, it, the character comes to New York and people really respond to that because it's actually based on journals and letters that I wrote when I first came to New York and it reminds us all of why we're here and who that person was who came here and what dreams that person had when they came here and how to reconnect to those and come to terms with those, say goodbye to those or, 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 or bring them back again in your life. So that uh, the show is about that also. What's the most rewarding moment for you, would you say, doing the show eight days a week? Um, the most rewarding thing about doing the show is um, my cast members. Um, we have uh, two of the best singers on Broadway right now. Called we call them the Mininettes, um, um, and uh, 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 Betsy Wolf and Lindsay Mendez. And Eamon Foley plays um, uh, a kid who um, brings me down to being a speck of dust on the earth. And um, he's a brilliant kid who goes to high school performing arts here. And, and um, seeing them every day, and, and I and I think that though when the show kind of at some points turns into a rock concert <laughs> for people of all ages I mean it just gets really people just laughing their asses off and being surprised and happy and um, when those when I can ride those shows just get in there and ride them that's great and fun well congratulations on your Tony nominations and best of luck come Tony thank you very much thank you Hi, my name is Montego Glover. I've been nominated for a Tony Award, uh, Best Leading Actress in a Musical. Yay. So how long has the trip with Memphis been for you? How long has the trip for Memphis been for me? That's six years of development. Yes. So you've been with it from the very beginning? From the very beginning, yes. And how much do you feel your, your role and how you approach the role has changed over the course of that time? Well, um, the heartbeat of the role and the show have always been the same. What we've gotten better at over development is the storytelling, the actual way we're telling the story, uh, the, the arc of the characters, the locale, the, the textures, the taste, the sound of the show. We've gotten better at the storytelling, and that's what you have on the stage today. What, where were you, Montego, when you heard the, the news that you were nominated? What were you doing? I was asleep. And the phone rang, and it was my agent, and he was screaming, congratulations. And I thought, oh, oh, yay! 
celebrate the nomination? I went to work. I saw everyone in my company, my acting company, on our crew and on our staff, and I told each and every one of them congratulations. And then I did my show, and I really enjoyed it. I always do, but it was, it was like opening night again. Who's the first person you called when you heard the news? I haven't called anyone. No. I've only been called. I've been fielding calls for two days. <laughs> I haven't called anyone, actually. Not so yet. So they all know? Um, everybody who's seen the TV and the website and everything else, I think, knows, yes. But I haven't called my family yet. I'll call them this weekend. So do you have to do anything special to take care of your voice for such a demanding role eight times a week? Well, it's true for this role and true for every role, taking care of the voice to perform eight times a week. And for me, I like to keep it simple. Um, I get sleep eight hours a night. Um, I'm very much an eight hours a night kind of girl. Um, rest, just, you know, that, warming up, using the technique that I have, staying hydrated. Um, and particularly for a Broadway run, which is open-ended and can be long, we hope, uh, just making sure that any activities outside of the theater, outside of the show, are, you know, things that I'm really, really passionate about and really, really want to do. So there's a lot of decision-making that goes on. How does the story of Memphis resonate with you personally? Well, I relate immediately to this character. She's uh, very much like me. We're both young African-American women from the South. I'm from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and we have passions and we have dreams and we love and we, we, do, it, we do it with a lot of verve. Um, so I understood her immediately and, and wanted to know more about her. That she has a place, that she has a voice, and not just a singing voice. There's something she really wants to say. And given an opportunity, she will say it. It's really interesting that you were asleep when they announced this. <laughs> I mean, is this that you weren't, like, hanging around the Internet or the telephone or the radio? Or, is, is this because you just didn't, you know, hey, fine, they do what they're going to do? Or, or was it that you just forgot? Or um, to be honest with you, I had played Carnegie Hall the night before, and uh, I, I, I was so in love with that experience but also tired so I went home to get sleep and again my job is my focus I love it very much so knowing that I had a week of performances the start of my work week is Tuesday evening I had to go to sleep I had to go to bed and get some rest because Tuesday evening I have a show is there a older teacher drama teacher of yours that's been particularly inspiring to you along your journey uh, my very first teacher, my very first acting teacher, Stella Duffy. Um, I began taking uh, acting classes and, and studying at 12, and she was tremendous. She taught me everything I know. She laid the foundation. What happens now in terms of fashion for you? I mean, is there any anxiety about what to wear, what to do, the shoes, the whole, the whole shebang? No anxiety at all. First of all, I have a magnificent publicist, uh, Lisa Goldberg. And she takes care of me in the best possible way. So there's no anxiety about that. And the good news about being a grown-up and a girl who knows what she likes is that I know what I like and I know what I don't like. And I make decisions pretty swiftly and decisively. So if I see something and I don't like it, we pass. If I see something I like, we go. Can't wait to see what you wear. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. <laughs> yes, but it should, it should be exciting. I mean, I'm a girl and a girly girl, so I like that stuff. I don't find it taxing or unnerving. It's going to be great. Well, congratulations on your nomination and best of luck. Thank you very much. Up close. My name is Jude. And I'm here for the nominees' lunch. So what, is this, so what does this mean to get this nomination? You know, you probably everyone says the same thing, but I tell you what, I am really thrilled. Really, really thrilled. It was a very personal and very 
exhausting and exhilarating and extraordinary journey. Six months, 200 performances of the most wonderful play and the most wonderful part. And every step, we'd never really banked on the next step. We took on London and that was great. And then Denmark and then Broadway was always there. And then, wow, we came over. And each, each time it was like a reintroduction of the whole journey again. And, and then we were done, done and dusted. And it felt like a triumph and we'd recouped and all of these good news and everyone was, you know, celebrating. And now, however many months later, to have this is like the perfect cherry on the cake. And to keep such great company, I'm a very happy man. How is it personal to you, Jude? Personal because I, I think the, the size of that part is such that at the end of the day you can take it on for logistical reasons, you can take it on for career reasons, you can take it on because you're meant to, you can take it on because you've been asked to, but at the end of the day it's, it's, it demands so much of you it can only possibly be personal because getting up every day and doing it eight times a week becomes a strange kind of introverted marathon of excess physical, emotional, vocal and in the end you, you have to dig into places that you just never ever thought you had to go and um, it opens up an awful lot of why and challenges an awful lot of why in the end you choose to do this job, this insane job, you know And but it, it rewards you too because of course at the end of the day you're <gasps> ecstatic with it how important is the stage for you? Do you intend to come back at some point? Absolutely. The only reason I, I hadn't been back to Broadway was because the two plays I did in London were um, with smaller companies, and, and uh, so we, we, we never made the move over here. And I don't know, you know, it's really silly. I think, if I'm honest, I overthought uh, the roles that were offered to me in the last 15 years and maybe didn't do as much theatre as I should have done. And now it's a race because before I'm, like, mid-40s or a couple of Shakespeare roles, I've got to play before I get too old. Biggest difference for you playing to a live audience than before a film camera. What, what, tell us about that feedback you get when you're in front of people. I'm probably stating the obvious, but the immediacy, the involvement, the physical involvement. I think Ian McKellen once said something rather brilliant, which is, you know, you as as alive as film can be in the moment. When you stand up and scream at a cinema screen, you get no response. If you stand up and scream in a theatre, you're part of the play. It's 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 alive. It's uh, breathing and living and. Well, congratulations on your Tony nomination, thank and thank you. you so much. Best of luck, come Tony. Thank you. Up close. Hello, this is Valerie Harper, and I am thrilled to be a nominee for the Antoinette Perry Award, otherwise known as Tony. Um, I'm married to one, so I mix that up. Uh, the um, uh, for the uh, in the category of best actress in a play, and the play that I was in was called Looped, a wonderful show about Tallulah Bankhead. Unfortunately, we're not still running, but we are going to be. There's a life for the show after this. How, but Valerie, how bittersweet is it to get nominated when they close the show? I'll tell you. Uh, when when people ask me uh, if it's bittersweet, the truth of it is, it's, it ameliorates the pain of the of the early closure. Yes, I mean this is a wonderful acknowledgement of not just me. My face is there; it's my name. I got this plum, this gigantic opportunity of a role of Tallulah Bankhead. She's such an incredible outrageous, extravagant character to play, but it d acknowledges the director, uh, Rob Ruggiero, my, uh, the playwright, 
Matthew Lombardo and everybody that worked on the show, the other actors. So it's a real, I can't say vindication. It's just, it's very, very sweet. I can't even call it bittersweet because I've had, you know, we, we closed April 11th. So I've had, a, you know, three weeks or so to sob and be upset. And, and this is just great. This is almost like, a, oh, my God, it's, it's wonderful. Because now we're part of theater history, not just a ship that passed in the night. They'll say, oh, who was nominated that year? Oh, Valerie Harper. Oh, and what play? And who was that director? Do you know what I mean? It, it kind of has solidified us in uh, Broadway history. I like that larger-than-life personality of Tallulah Bankhead affected your own life? I mean, do you feel like, oh, man, I, I, I should be more like her or I'm ble- I want to be less like her? Playing Tallulah Bankhead has been incredible because um, she was so huge a character. Um, and what I feel in common with her is that we both loved acting in the theater so much. Um, and I'm kind of... She was so free and so honest and truthful. There are no tell-all books about Tallulah because she told all. And she told all at a time when no one was telling all. Um, and here's a woman who you know, inspired Tennessee Williams by his own admission for four plays. He heard her voice, this marvelous Southern woman who wasn't that Southern, really. She was English. But her antebellum history, he kind of, you know, lusted after that in terms of, uh, not sexually, but as the playwright material. But, uh, and also she inspired Corella DeVille in the 101 Dalmatians. So this is quite a broad, you know. And I, I love playing her, but I don't feel like her, I don't say that, I don't think I have, uh, you know, taken it to heart, like, you're all too young, but the double life with Ronald Coleman, where he strangles, I think, he thinks it's, he's doing the play of Othello, and strangles, I think it was Shelley Winters, when she was a young Tootsie, I think she's the one that, uh, it was a maid that he, or or somebody, or a girlfriend, and he thought she was Desdemona, no, I, I haven't, Tallulah has not overtaken me, but she does when I go on stage in this role. I just step right into her heels, mink, and cocaine-crusted nose, and I'm there. <laughs> when you knew, when you when the show closed, what did you snag right away from the set? Oh. As, well, when the show closed, I, um, I wanted to... Let me think a minute. Just one minute. I don't think I took anything. Oh, Oh, I know. When the show closed, I didn't take anything from the set because it's in storage for Toronto. We're, we're, we're committed to 10 weeks there. And my husband is the executive producer, not executive, lead producer, as they say on the Broadway stage. But he has done four productions of this. So I don't dare take a souvenir that my husband would have to replace. <laughs> Good idea. <Good laughs> say, idea. it's enough with the clothing bills. Now you're stealing from the set. But uh, no. probably one of the best entrance lines ever on the stage. How fun is that to walk oh. out and say that? It's unbelievable. It is one of the greatest. And, and it worked well in New York, but it even worked better in Pasadena, in, in the Los Angeles area. And the line was, F Los Angeles. And what she's saying is she's taken her so long to get to this looping session through freeways, and they should have sent a car. She's all upset. So she just walks in, and doesn't, there's no one to speak to. She hasn't seen anyone in the room. She just finally arrived and says, F, F Los Angeles. 
you know, the damn freeways and the thing, and leading to more freeways. And it's a wonderful uh, role uh, that uh, Matthew Lombardo has written, a rant. And then finally she sees the young man and thinks he's a director and is talking and talking, and then finally she says, who the F are you? She's been talking for, like, you know, a full minute. So it is a great entrance. Yeah. Did you, did you ever think for one minute why the show closed? Did that ever cross your mind? What, what do you think it was? Well, I, I happen to know why the show closed. We had a, an investor dropout to the tune of excess of $500,000 last minute. So everybody else was trying to put in money. Um, my husband contributed substantially and other investors stepped up, wonderful people. Our lead, lead people were just trying to do that. We came in fast and we came into the Lyceum, which is on the other side of Broadway. And we, um, I think we didn't have enough publicity and enough, uh, um, what's it, advertising. The advertising that we budget. Thank you. <laughs> I was trying, I was thinking about the great word of mouth that we had, and that we couldn't get we couldn't get it publicized enough through advertising because it, people were coming to see the show and oh, liking it. it. They love it and laughing and loving it. But you know, the truth is, it's the vicissitudes of Broadway, which, like, um, for instance, I think is it. Um, Wicked is about 800000 a week to run. They make a million four, which is great. It works out. But if you're not, and I don't know what ours was. I don't do any of the business. But say you're nuts, 200000 running expenses. You're making one ninety. One ninety is great, but you're short ten. And then maybe you're short 20, and then, you, and then you don't have money for. So that was really, we were underfunded. And we thought maybe it would catch on. I, and we didn't really. Unfortunately, my recorder cut out uh, as I ran out of space and I had to quick delete some files. But it didn't happen soon enough to finish off the interview with Valerie Harper. Best of luck to Valerie Harper. Up close. Uh, my name is Maria Dizia. I'm nominated um, Best Featured Actress um, for the Vibrator Play. In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play by Sarah Rule. But Which you like saying the Vibrator Play I best. I like saying the Vibrator Play, yes. I prefer it. <laughs> How embarrassing is that role to do night after night? It got... It was never embarrassing. It was always exhilarating and exciting. And the quieter the audience was, the more excited I was to get to break the ice with them and to have that experience. Excitement, no pun intended there, right? <laughs> right, exactly. It was, yes. When I played that role, yes, it's true. Yeah, pretty much everything. Now, how did you do research for the play? Um, we we read about hysteria um, for, yeah. How did we do research for the play? <laughs> we, <laughs> I'm learning about rephrasing the questions. Um, we, for the research, we read um, about hysteria, and we also read a book by Rachel Maines called uh, The Technology of the Orgasm, which was the most important book. And it was the um, research about how uh, health professionals helped women um, overcome their hysteria through the years, which started with Aristotle, actually, um, and is continued, and it disappears, and then it peaks up again at interesting moments. Um, but that's what we studied. And I understand that the director gave you sort of some cues as to how to fake it, so to speak. So tell us about that. Yeah, he did. Well, actually, he, um, our director was 
a little, by his own admission, a little skittish about directing our orgasms. Um, so he would watch us uh, for a while and then he would kind of like tiptoe up and say, I think that you should be a little quieter there and maybe then get loud all of a sudden. <laughs> it was really wonderful. But the minute he would start to talk about it, he would start to blush. Um, so it was really fun. I'm sure he learned a lot though. Uh, yes, I think he did. I think that he probably knows a lot already. <laughs> You're in some category of actresses as well. I am. It's the most that was the thing that I find the most like extraordinary that I just really can't get over is that I've seen all I saw all of the performances. I saw Jan Maxwell and Scarlett Johansson and Jessica Hecht and Rosemary Harris and all of their performances are so exquisite and I just can't believe that I'm in their company and I'm really excited to meet Rosemary Harris. Is this your first nomination? Yes, it is my first nomination. <laughs> so who did you call first to let know? Um, well, I was actually home already. I was um, with my parents in New Jersey, and so I ran downstairs and told my dad, and my mom had gone for a walk in the morning, and so we were waiting for her to come back. Um, and then we told her together. Talking about your parents, how did you say, um, hey, I got a great role on Broadway, but... <laughs> um, when I got the part, I actually, um, we worked it in Berkeley first and I actually my parents always are they're incredibly supportive and they come see me and everything and I actually asked them not to come when I was in everything I say is a pun I can't believe it um, <laughs> but I actually asked them not to come to Berkeley and see the show because I didn't know what the experience was going to be um, and after I had the experience in Berkeley and I felt more comfortable with it, then I was excited to share it with them on Broadway. And I really, I had for a fraction of a second, I thought about what they were thinking and then I forgot. And my dad actually said um, that he was happy to see me not dying. They've seen me die in so many plays that he said it was actually nice to see my daughter enjoying herself. <laughs> So, what sort of feedback, Maria, are you getting from women? Uh, are they shocked that this even happened? Well, yes, some women. Some women. Um, the responses from women have been interesting. Some women are really surprised and even skeptical that this was real history and that Sarah did not, you know, change anything at all. Um, but most of the women know it innately. Most of the women understand what's going on and are not surprised that it happened and are really exhilarated by the discoveries and the discoveries that they had in their own life. And a lot of women found what they saw on stage to be really validating of their own experience. And that was the thing that was the most wonderful about it. Actors, when they get, um, make a sensation in a part, they find their inboxes piling up with scripts asking them to do the same thing. Is, is that been the, is, do you have any effect like that for you after this? Well, I haven't had... Um, it's funny. I actually, right after the show closed, I had an audition where I was supposed to fake uh, an orgasm. And I thought I, on any other occasion I would have been embarrassed to do it, but I couldn't wait. I thought, I was like, you know what, this is the one thing that I really feel comfortable with. <laughs> um, but I actually did not get the part. Is there a significant other who now wonders when something is real or not? Um, <laughs> no, I wonder. Although I have off. to say, I know, I have to say, um, I think that uh, I, reve I think I, ha I revealed everything about myself, and so I think that people who know me would, everything looks pretty familiar. <laughs> so. Congratulations on your nomination, and best of luck coming. Curtain call.
So that's 16 interviews in an hour and 30 minutes. <laughs> a couple other just notes about the the day. You probably noticed uh, I was at a table with uh, five other radio slash internet audio uh, people. So we had to do our interviews in group. But what was kind of fun is I was at the front. So I got to be the one to explain to everybody the rules for trying to state their names. So we all had usable stuff, et cetera. And Maybe because, you know, as I said, uh, thank you most of the time. I also seem to be the one that all the PR agents would uh, wrap their fingers around the air, signaling that it was time to wrap it up. Um, And anyway, it was a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed the interviews. A lot of great people. I wish them the best of luck. Again, we're going to have a very special episode next week for the Planet Connections Festivity. Interviewing a bunch of their shows. And you can find out more at planetconnectionsfestivities.org. And then the week after that, I believe we're going to have a few more Tony nominees here in the studio for another batch of more in-depth interviews. So once again, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and thanks for hopping on board the Broadway Bullet. The hairs went up on the back of my neck. The Broadway Bullet. It was a thrilling moment. With Dobbs, so shouldn't audition come up? We are so ready and raring. So Jake Kowski says my name and I'm in the can. <laughs> Actually, the barfait thing comes from my whole life. People just showing vulture, boggler. Unpackage those things with the audience and explore them a little bit. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, and I hope you are, Go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.